Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog, and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton-Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I am so happy and really honored to have Ursula Burns as my guest on today's podcast. Many people know Ursula as the former CEO of Xerox and the first black woman to be named CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Her memoir, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are, will be out in late spring. Her list of business accomplishments since she left the leadership of Xerox a few years ago are really impressive indeed. I've known Ursula for many years. In addition to all of these great accomplishments, I also know her as a devoted mother to her now adult children, a daughter, Melissa, her son, Malcolm, as someone who is deeply invested in parenting, who's been influenced by the masterful parenting of her mother, and who's brought these lessons to her own children. And so I'm so excited that she's here to talk with us about this today. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Ursula. Really, really thrilled to be here. Well, let's get started. Um, so. I, I know that parenting has been really influential in your life, in your work, and in your parenting. So let's just start, let's back up and start with little Ursula Burns, <laughs> who grew up in New York City. And can you tell me a little bit about, I, I mean, you've talked about her a lot, but if you could tell me a little bit about your amazing mom, Olga Raquel Burns, and how how you were parented. Yeah, my mother was, um, she was an immigrant from Panama who came here with her husband, her then husband. I was the middle child. My brother was the oldest and my sister the youngest. And she was very, very quickly um, left to parent the three of us alone. She was a masterful parent. She surrounds her children. She surrounded her children. Mm. We had very little flexibility to do anything. <laughs> Plain and simple. We grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan when the Lower East Side was not cool when it was actually dangerous, drug infested, gang infested. Uh, one of her primary rules was that she had to know where we were at all times. And uh, we were highly controlled. She was, she was very clear about what right and wrong looked like. She was very vocal and physical if we were not doing what was right mm -hmm. all the time. She was very, very focused on education. Um, and one of her she had all these crazy sayings. One of her best um, sayings was the title of my book, interestingly enough, is which is where you are is not who you are, because we grew up in a disastrous place. I mean, it was dirty. It was just things that, that weren't that great. But when you walked into our house, it was an organized, clean uh, place with um, dignity and just love and and control. And so she, that's why I like the word, the ground control parenting. I like the title because <laughs> that was my mother. <laughs> In control. And, but she was, she was very loving and extremely smart, um, unbelievably insightful. Um, and, you know, you say this about, people say this about their parents all the time. Oh, yeah. But my mother really was. She had these crazy sayings that I live by today. I said, one of them is where you are is not who you are. She would always say to me, Max, my, my middle name is Maxine. Max, the world doesn't happen to you. You have to happen to the world. Mm. Which meant don't sit back and wait for things to kind of come to you. You have to kind of go there and, and get them. And uh, she would say, another thing she said all the time was, um, you leave behind more than you take away. And that's how you're going to be judged in your life. It's not anything else. It's not going to be how much you have, how much you got, how famous you are. It's going to be whether or not you've left behind in the world more than you take away. So she was just one of these really masterful women who, who were, she was definitely underestimated and definitely underutilized um, given her capacity. And she died very young. Yes, yes. A couple of questions. What was her core of that? I mean, was it how she was raised or was it her ability to come to a new country and I think, I think it was how she, I think it's a great question, by the way. And uh, it's interesting how much I learned about my mother after she died, not before. Before she mm -hmm. died, she didn't spend a lot of time speaking about her childhood or about my father or anything. I mean, we she had no bad words about anyone, but she did have a really difficult upbringing. She was um, raised by her mother, um, but her father was not the person who my, my mother's mother was married to. Ah. So my mother's two older sisters 
um, Sita, whose name is Ursula. I'm named after her. Mm-hmm. We'll call her Sita for short. And um, Melita, Mel, uh, Mel, were her two older sisters who, they were like, let's say, five to eight years older than she was, maybe a little bit older than that even. And they, at one point, realized her mother was not being cared for well. Mm. And so when they were young, when they were, I think, 15 and 17, they they literally went to get my mother and take her out of her home, out of her mother's home and brought her to the home of her father, who was their father as well. And so she was raised from the time she was, let's say, about 10 years old um, for the rest of her life with her father and her stepmother, Lena, who was this magical woman. Mm. So I think that what she what my mother ended up having was knowledge of what good looked like and what bad looked like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so she, she really, really zeroed in on what good looked like and how she was treated by her stepmother and her sisters and her, and her father. And, and it was from that point on in her life, it was a good life, even though it was a poor life. She was, you know, my mother's black in Panama and just like the rest of the world, people of dark skin were treated very, very poorly um, in, in Panama and so she was obviously she lived in in a place that was less than stellar, but she was raised by with love by her her stepmother and her father and her sisters and brothers and all the people who she who became her family became her new family. I think she basically just doubled down on that. She realized what good looked like and she realized what good didn't look like. And she said, I'm going to do the good, which was very good for us. Wow, that that really is. It, it really is a testament to the only upside of having really traumatic childhood is if you can get from it what you don't want to do, first of all. And secondly, if you can change it. (laughs) And clearly, as you said, she surrounded you guys from day one with love. She knew what parenting trauma could look like because she came with her husband and her husband left. But she also knew how that didn't matter ultimately if you had people around you who really loved you. That's great. Exactly. We were the the true, um, we would laugh about this, my brother, my sister and I, and we all have, my brother and my sister have different trajectories than I had, but all all great people at the end of the day. They, they're both mm-hmm. amazingly um, strong people, my sister in particular. But my mother, you know, we were, we were the early examples of it takes a village. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, we grew up in a really tough neighborhood in the Lower East Side of New York City. And, you know, we lived in a really tough building or in a tough block, et cetera. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. basically poverty being raised in poverty in a, in the city that, that at that time really didn't have a lot of services for people who were very poor, but the people on the block who were all in the same situation, right? They, most of the people on the block really cared for their children, their children. And so what we ended up doing was being raised by the block, mm-hmm. all of the women on the block. So if they saw me doing something wrong, you know, my mother had given pretty clear instructions to all of them that <laughs> that they're the parent at that moment. They right. Inside the head, they would send us home, they, you know, you name it. And then call my mother and then we would also get home and get punished as well. So <laughs> we literally had and she did the same thing with the with the with the kids on the block that weren't her kids. So mm-hmm. it was it's unfortunate that today we don't really have that type of community, that, that type of um, responsibility, broad responsibility for each other is kind of breaking down a little bit. It it's is. one of the things that I think we're serving. It's not, you know, particularly black and brown kids. It's very difficult. You know, churches used to be important. Poor parents all around you used to be important. But now what's happening is that it's that is fracturing as well. So mm-hmm. even if you have a bad situation at home, there's really not a strong connection to the church as it used to be or connection to community as it used to be, you kind of suffer and suffer alone. And fortunately I didn't have that as an outcome. We didn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are pockets of organizations that are trying to make a difference. The Harlem children's zone clearly sees a need for a community, but societally we've moved far away from my uh, friend's child is my child as well. Most unfortunately. Yes. Um, right. It, it's unfortunate that's the case, but that's, that is the case. Yes. And one of the things that we have to do, one of the things that my mother always used to tell me was look to your, le- to all of us, to look to your left, look to your right. That's my brother and my sister. And we had cousins who, mm-hmm. my mother's sister's kids, all of, the, all of us were in the same thing. She said, these are the people that you're going to know better than anyone else, longer than anyone else in your life. 
So you guys have to be responsible for each other. This is another thing that has been, that's fracturing a bit. So my life is directly, my joy, my life, my comfort is directly connected to my sister's joy, life and comfort, and my brother's joy, life and comfort, Mm -hmm. and his kids as well. So it's, it's a very different environment now that I see out there where sharing and suffering together and having joy together is not something that happens as much anymore. So. Oh, it's so true. So fast forward, you now have children and you've got all these lessons in your head. <laughs> now, unfortunately, as you said, you lost your mom um, when she was young and, and you were young. And so um, she didn't get to stand by and, and watch how you raised your children. But how did it work for you? I mean, clearly your kids are in a different environment, different resources, different circumstances. I know your mom worked hard and you worked hard. How were you able to take those lessons and bring them forward? Yeah, one of the things I say a lot in, is that I actually copied my mother's playbook for parenting. I, <laughs> I have no new thoughts. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> even though I grew, my kids are growing up in an unbelievably different physical financial, everything environment. Mm-hmm. My mother died when I was 25. She was 49. Um, she was going to be 50 the year that she died. And we were poor from the time, you know, from the beginning of time. And we, even when my mother passed away, I was working at Xerox, but I was early in my career. So I was 25. So I had been working for three or four years by then. Right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a lot of money, but I was definitely, you know, compared to my mother, I was, I was rich. My kids, Never saw that. You know, by the time my son was born and my daughter was born, my my son is my stepson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the time they were born, we were already flying on private planes. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. But if you talk to them today, one of the things that will be very, that's very clear and in some ways very odd is that they don't really get that privilege, that f- sense of privilege, because we just didn't raise them that way. We, we, we really sheltered them. And even to this day, we sheltered them from wealth mm-hmm. and sheltered them from insane comfort. We could not raise them like we were raised, right? We, right. You know, we, we had literally nothing when we were raised, my brother, mm-hmm. my sister, and I. My kids obviously had stuff, mm-hmm. but, but their idea of you know, what they were entitled to, even to this day, is very, very little. They're entitled to very little. Mm-hmm. My son is adopting a little bit better to the new realities of of having, you know, going to going to college with no debt and, you know, all the mm-hmm. other things that we just didn't have the option to, to do. My daughter is very much like, uh, you know, a little bit of a mole in that, you know, she worries about how much money she makes. And she's very much separated from wealth and privilege. My daughter, my son is a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. He gets it a little bit more, but we, we, so going back to the, to the fundamental question, I raised my kids very much like I was raised. My, my husband was the same way. I mean, his parents were teachers in Bermuda. They were clearly not dirt poor, but they were far, far, far from wealthy. And, and both of his parents, particularly his mother, was pretty um, intense, an intense parenter as well. <laughs> and so we, we kind of walk into this relationship and have these children um, with a huge amount of consistency in how we think raising them should, what kind of mold we should raise them and model. And so we don't give them a lot, you know, we just didn't give them a lot of flexibility. Same here, this idea that people had like cell phones and they would you know, not know they get cards when they were young. Literally, that is that just did not happen. <laughs> it just did not happen. We finally got my daughter a cell phone. My husband insisted because we would he would be the one who would pick her up from school after work or after his work because he was a scientist, so he could actually have a lot more flexibility at the end of the day. And he would have to kind of walk around the building to find out where she was. <laughs> finally, he said to me, can we just give her a phone so I could call her? <laughs> we said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got the kids, you know, phones. My God, my daughter must have been 15, 14, 15 years old before she got mm-hmm. anything that looks like 15, 16, before she got anything that looks like a phone. And all of her friends had phones. But we didn't care. It wasn't like we were trying to not, we weren't trying to eliminate 
technology from them. It was it was more that they didn't really need it. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't see a need for it. So why would you give it to them? Uh, another thing was these computers in your room. It took, thank God, we grew up a little bit earlier. I think your kids are a little bit younger than mine. Mm-hmm. Parents who are raising their children today, I think their kids not having a computer or a cell phone, or they would be considered Martians. When, we were, <laughs> when my kids were growing up, fortunately, it was still at the <laughs> earlier phase of this. And we could have a really simple discussion that went, we're just not giving you one. I mean, it's just... <laughs> You just, you know, you can't, we can't afford that. You can't afford to have one. We can't afford to have one, et cetera, et cetera. But nowadays, I think it would be considered so odd if you didn't have access to this for your kids. Yeah, I actually, my kids were just on the cusp of, uh, I, my rule was no fo- no computer in the room, no laptop. We had, there were computers, but they were in a open space and everyone had to use them there. As they got into older grades, high school and all, it, and laptops became sort of the way you had to actually communicate with your teachers through the laptop. Then I, but but when I understood that, I allowed it. But it really did, it did demonstrate to me a real change in what parents could do because if you could keep the computers out, Absolutely. then you could monitor what they were exposed to. I mean, the internet is just this big open place where they can see anything and. Now with laptops everywhere, children just you can't you can't censor. I mean, I know that's a bad word, but you can't you can't filter what they can see. So you know, I think censorship for parents is is a big piece of what we do when we parent. We absolutely censor. We absolutely mm-hmm. do not allow children to see certain our children, you I mean hopefully everybody's doing this, to see certain things that that are readily available to be seen. <laughs> We eliminate it from their ability to see it, plain and simple, mm-hmm. until they get older. Then they can, I mean, at the, we want what my mother wanted. I, she didn't say this, but what my mother wanted, what I want is I want my kids to be formed as much as possible by me and my husband, not by open society, not mm-hmm. in television, not by, you know, the, the bad things that you read, not by the news. We wanted them to be formed by us. Now, it turns out you can't do that totally. <laughs> Wait, if you could. But we were we right. were not ashamed at all, at all, <laughs> to censor, to eliminate, to actually give mm-hmm. them our point of view. And in some cases, no other. When they were younger, that was it. It was my myself, my husband, my <laughs> sister, my brother, you know, my, their uncles and aunts from the, the, the father's side. And, you know, some very, very good friends who were, you know, as they as they were both born in Rochester and raised in Rochester, we have some really great friends around us who had children who were similar ages. Some of them had children who were similar ages. And that was the world. That was their world. That was their world. That's who they saw. That's who we hung out with. That's um, who they heard from. Uh, who they, you know, they, then they went to school. But literally, we had a tight, as tight a ring as you can. And we, we put our kids in schools both my son and my daughter in relatively small schools. We had the flexibility to do that. Thank goodness. Because particularly my daughter, who is very articulate and curious and a little bit um, more grown up when she was younger, we put her in a very small private school, in a small Mm -hmm. private school, because we just, she was ripe for anything. (laughs) We, we, We and we were like, nah, we, you know, keep us, keep her really close to us, and and uh, and her bro- and to her brother, which was a you know a big thing that we had to work on as well to make sure that these two kids were really close to each other, like my brother, my sister, and I. Right. Uh, two two quick things on that. First of all, what you just said is really really important, and um, I'm personally to me certainly, and I would have advocated for parents. My three children, who are very different people, they're not they're relatively close in age, but not stair step share a bond that they will share for the rest of their lives. And it saddens me when I understand that children don't get along. I mean, and and I say this from experience, I had two older brothers and while I was close to all of them, we didn't have a strong bond. Our our bond grew as we got older, but when we were younger, we we didn't have a lot in common. It was really important to me that no matter what my kids had in common, that they knew that to what, what your mom said, these are going to be the people that you're going to know for all of your life. And you're going to really want to, to have them ride or die with you. Absolutely. And so depend on that, each other. you have to depend on each other. Yeah. And you have yeah. to bring each other along and support and, you know, all the stuff that 
we know about. And when we were growing up, when I was growing up, it was just natural. I mean, that's the way it happened. Nowadays, it seems to be, like I said, a lot different. And part of it is that mobility has increased significantly. Um, this, you know, access to technology has made it such that your world automatically becomes bigger. Um, even if it's not necessarily a real world, it's a huge, and that enables you to distance yourself from things that are close by. Right. And when I right. was growing up, it was not that easy. I mean, we, 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 it just wasn't that easy. And thank goodness for it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I also like what you said about you and your husband being having your opinions really matter. Because I find sometimes parents want to give their children more agency at a younger age to weigh in. And, and my goal for three kids was as they got older, I wanted them all to be able to hear in the back. And I would say this to them. I want you all to be able to hear when you're about to do something that's questionable. The sentence that says, my mother would kill me if, and then the line, and then fill in whatever you're about to do. Now, as they got much older, I would say, look, you may do it anyway, but I want you to know before you do it, (laughs) that I would kill you if you did it. I want them, I wanted them to have a, a, a core from which they had to decide to stray as opposed to this kind of amorphous, everybody decide together what it is that is supposed to be happening. So I'm definitely on the same page with you with respect to, with respect to that. So, I don't know what happens if you don't do that though, Carol. I really don't know if you're trying to parent today, mm-hmm. how in the world, it's just hard for me to imagine just how you can deal with all they deal, all they get, all they get access to. Right. So as they get older, what you want to do is exactly what you said. I say this to my son because he was the most um, worldly. You know, he was like hanging out with friends. My daughter was very close to home. Mm-hmm. And then, then it switched, right? My, my son, <laughs> get him out of the house. And I'm like, <laughs> we can't get him out of the house now. I mean, he, he does live alone. But w- this, I would say to my son all the time, I said to him, sweetheart, you have to understand the worst thing that could happen to us as a family is that you die or get really hurt. Mm-hmm. You have to make sure you understand your responsibility to me and your father and your sister is that that does not happen. (laughs) You can't be in a situation that you know, because at the time when they were growing up, one of the things I always worried about was um, being in a car with somebody who was drinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I would say, I don't care where you are. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care, good, bad, or indifferent. I promise you, if you call me Mm -hmm. and you tell me, I am in trouble and I don't want to talk to you about this at all. I want you to forget this, but I want you to pick me up. I promise you, I will forget. I will not ask you. I promise you, I will not ask you. Literally, I will come and get you, but you cannot use, I'm afraid that I'm going to disappoint my, all this stuff that comes into people's minds. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, after the event, and if it happened, if the event, nothing matters, nothing of all that history would matter to Mm -hmm. me. You really have a responsibility to make sure that you take care of yourself, that you don't put yourself in danger, that you don't, you know, and the same thing about sex. I would tell them both, make sure you understand when you make a baby, you are tied to the parent forever, to the other parent. Mm -hmm. So by the way, you are definitely tied to the child, right? Tied to the other parent. You cannot be a good parent without having some relationship with the other parent. You just can't. Now, it, particularly if they're in the world, it doesn't have to be this loving, hang out together relationship. <laughs> you got to talk about something, right? So my son, who's my stepson, who we, who I raised from the time he was like, let's say, months old. Mm-hmm. Right? We co his mother is alive, mm-hmm. and we we we're not like we don't hang out together. But early on. I had to make the decision with my husband and with his mother, Charlie, that what the most important thing was Malcolm. Mm-hmm. That was it. It was not how I felt, how Charlie felt, or how Lloyd felt. So, and the most important relationship is going to be between Malcolm and Melissa. These two people are close together in age. They are brother and sister, and they're raised in the same community household. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I mean, if you talk to Malcolm today, he, 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 his friends can't really get it. It's like, (laughs) 
you know, she's your wife. I said, he says, yeah, it's my mom. <laughs> and then when he graduated from, he graduated from MIT, as you know, as an undergraduate, you know, he was top of his class or some important thing in his class. So he had to go up and get an award. And then we, the parents took a picture and to take a picture with him. And it was me and my husband and his mother, Charlie. <laughs> and the question by his friends was, wow, this seems to be getting along this fine. And he was like, there was no really getting along or not getting along. Because we didn't, it's not like we had this bond where we'd go vacation together, not at all. <laughs> but we raised my son with zero ambiguity about who was the most important person in the room. And it was not the three of us, it was him. And so he's, I think, and, you know, so he's turned out to be one of these just gracious, just gracious, loving kids, almost, almost too gentle. You know, almost too. <laughs> okay, mom. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a great kid. He's a, he really is. My daughter is as well. I, I, I'm proud of them. Even though at 31 and 28 this year, 31 this year, they are old. They're older. They're grown up. Mm-hmm. But you, as you know, you still look at them like that. You know, I still worry. Like they could. You know, oh my goodness! Them. You know, I say to all these parents of these little babies, and they're so focused on you know what their future is. It's like, let me tell you, when they get to be in their twenties and thirties, the the parenting stress changes, but it does not go away. <laughs> it does not go away. It does not go away. And in some ways, it's so much harder because you don't have direct control. And you remember precisely where you were at that age. Now, who remembers when they were two? But you yeah. really remember. I remember. Your frame of reference is going to be much, much sharper. Yeah. <laughs> much sharper. So I I, I could, I, I love this conversation. I have one other quick section if you've got time to ask you about Absolutely. it. Okay. So I'm going to shift from um, your parenting to a question that I know you get asked all the time, but I'm going to try to put a different spin on it. I'm going to call it the balance question, but I'm going to I'm going to qualify this. So I know and I've heard you say in interviews that wherever you go, women ask you, how do you balance it all? And and then just recently I heard you talk about it's not work, work and children. It's a life balance. So I've also heard you say very correctly that men don't ask that question and they don't get asked that question. So the first thing I want to ask you is about the question itself. Um, do you feel like on some level that it's not, and if talking about questioning a, a woman CEO or a woman that's very, um, uh, prominent in business, do you think on any level, it's not an appropriate question because men don't get asked it? I mean, I'm sure you're not offended by it, but should that be taken out of the equation or should everybody get asked it because it's an important part of life? I think it's a mixture of the two things that you just suggested, or three things. One is that it, it is uh, it is annoying to a certain extent mm-hmm. to be asked it. Mm-hmm. It's a little annoying to me to be asked it by women in particular and women in college because I say this whenever I, and this is not not older women because I older women I get right because they, they, right history was different life was different mm-hmm. back then but I go to colleges and speak all the time all the time and one of the things that's really funny is that the women in the room, this is MBA students, law school students, these are graduates, and they they are dating people in their circles. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. And they ask me the question, and I say, you are defining your life as you go forward, and you have fallen in, you have accepted a, a, a situation that you don't have to accept. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very natural before when women stayed home mm-hmm that they stayed home. Mm-hmm. But now you are training to be one of, you know, a mover and a shaker in the world. And you haven't had this conversation with your potential spouse where you say, what are we going to do? What you know, I, I'm, I, I have my law degree. You have your law degree or your business degree. What are we going to do when we have the children? The assumption you walk into a relationship of peers, right? This peer, mm-hmm. you walk in and he walks in with this assumption that of course, when that happens, it's going to be you, or you, or at least you walk in with it. And I say the the issue I have is that if you feel comfortable enough asking me this question, why the hell are you not comfortable asking your husband, your potential husband, this question? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I just keep saying. Falling into line when there is really no line is kind of silly to me. 
make a new line. There's, mm-hmm. I mean, you're marrying this 20 something year old person who's very well trained like you are. Mm-hmm. You didn't get trained. I, I'm assuming you're not training because you want to stay home. Mm-hmm. But if you want to stay home, I'm all for mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I really am. All for it. I think it's a great, as I say all the time, I mean, we need mothers mm-hmm. and fathers. So mm-hmm. if they want to, we need them as much as possible right, in the, participating in the kids' lives. So I don't, so that's one. One is that I want women to actually not continue to fall into line if they're not comfortable doing that. If they have a man who's, or or a partner, it could be not even a man, mm-hmm. a who, who they have to have this conversation with. And if they can't have it with them and the person's not open, you learn something about it. That's the first. The second is, the second part of the discussion is that everyone today, as even me, like, so when I was, my husband was a child and I was a child, the model was that a parent stayed at home. And when we came into the, my mother stayed at home, the mother stayed at home. When we came into the work world, it was more accepted and actually expected mm-hmm. that the mother would say, I mean, it was more than accepted. It was, of course, that would happen. That's changing now. That's why I say to the women today, ask the question. I mean, have the discussion yourselves, ask it to your employer, talk to your future spouse about what the hell is going on, right? In the middle is, I think that we we overemphasize this idea that you have to be in every single aspect of your kid's life every moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is, so even my mother, who, who could, my mother could not be at home all the time. She had to work. Mm-hmm. So um, this idea of balance between work and life, people ask me, I said, what, I don't understand work and life balance. Isn't work part of life? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's called life. I mean, it's like child wearing is part of life. It's all part of life. So we have to figure out a way to balance it all. Mm-hmm. We, we can't have this thing as like this new, this additional burden mm-hmm. on our life. It's this other aspect of our life that we're trying to fit in. It's all of our life. And we have to kind of figure out a way to make it play and make it play well. And we over, I think we over-index on models that don't really apply to us, and particularly black and brown women. I tell you what, particularly everybody who I grew up with, every woman had to work because they had no choice. So they had to figure out a way to have a family life, a work life, or this life, or that life, caring life. So mm-hmm. that's the second part of it. And the, the, the third part of it is I do believe that we owe it to men to allow them to do what we are expecting women to do. Mm-hmm. So we allow men to do what we expect women to do. We expect women to come into work and say, I'm thinking about having a child. How are we going to change my work day? My work. Mm-hmm. We absolutely have to have men do the same thing. How crazy is it that we continuously remove from our children's life? very formative ages of their lives for massive blocks of time. These men, mm-hmm. they go off and they go work. They, I mean, they, they literally, in the past, they would go at eight and come back at seven at night. I don't think it's a good balance of parenting mm-hmm. to have the woman be the, or the man, the single part, be the only model, right? My mother had to do it. And she had to fill it in with all kinds of makeshift uncles, you know, whatever, whatever or herself being both parents. I think if you have the, benefit of having both around we owe it to the men to give them the ability to be significantly more engaged mm-hmm. ability and permission to be significantly more engaged and say no i'm going to stay home right and we still we women still expect that that men obviously look at other men and say what the hell are you doing mm-hmm. <laughs> you you're not what you're you're not and the answer is no, no, I'm going to stay home and I'm going to raise the kids for nine months or a year because I, you know, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think that this whole model has to change. And I think the women who are the vic, who are quote unquote often the victims of the model, have to in many ways lead the transition. They have to start saying, wait a minute, guys, uh, you know, I, I just, we need a, di- I need a different model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need a different model work. I need a different model daycare. I need a different model. We need to figure out a different model to give us flexibility. So I agree a hundred percent. What, what I hear you saying as well, which I also agree with is that culturally women have to get to the point where they're not 
subconsciously going with this flow. Oh, this is huge. No matter how well educated you are, how many graduate degrees you have, in you in in many people's DNA is a thinking of the way things are supposed to be. You, what you can't do is figure out how you fit into that way, but you figure yeah. this is a way. And so, in order to shift the the, in order to do exactly what you said, which is so important, to to sort of try to level out how parenting works. Because to your point, fathers, parents, partners, two people <laughs> with different perspectives are needed. Absolutely. A tag team. Yeah. It's both needed. But there is this expectation, no matter how smart everyone is, <laughs> that um that that there is a way and you're breaking that way. And 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 culturally and societally, when you break that way, there's there everybody sort of pauses, including the people themselves. So you're right. These young people have to talk to their partners, but they also have to talk to themselves because yeah. really for all of the bravery, and I'm not trying to make light of this at all, but really for the paths that women are forging and are able to forge now, this part is kind of, they, they, they're forging ahead in industry. And it's funny because, you know, just as an aside, you, um, the, the current women who are Black CEOs, Roz Brewer, Sandra Duckett, and other CEOs who are women of color, Sonia Seigal and Indra Nuri, all you had children. I mean, the, 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 you guys all manage to have children. It's not as if there is a role model of the single woman who is really breaking through the ceiling. So it exists. And each of you figured it out. But undoubtedly, each of you figured it out in a way that was, uh, was took some doing and took some sort of thinking differently. So I, 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 that, that part for, for young women, I, I hope they're all, they're all naturally thinking a little differently because of the world is different, but I wonder, um, and, and I worry a little, I mean, certainly, I you know, my daughter's thinking differently. She's sort of not in the mindset of the way my household is set up is not the way her household is going to be set up. I know that's clear, yeah. but I do think we don't tell, to your point, exactly. We don't tell young women it's it's not like it's a it's breaking the fairy tale. It's like it's not even a. You have so much opportunity to figure it out, but you have to acknowledge that you know it, it, it's important. And and I've heard you do this before. Talk about sort of the heights that you have reached. What you give up. Everything is a balance. Everything is a balance. Every choice you make is a choice. If you know what I mean. So, right. Right. So obviously, you're not doing the thing that you chose not to do. But <laughs> wait, sometimes the thing that you chose not to do is what you want to do. I. This is not perfection. I would I say this, and in, in the book you'll read it, where people will say, my God, you guys have, you look at you alone, look at your two kids, my God, the perfect life. I said, if you were a fly on the wall in my house on any given day over the years that we were living together, uh, my husband and I with the children, you would say, this is the craziest goddamn family I have ever been engaged with. <laughs> because we did exactly what everybody else did. Scrambled, you know, um, fought over the, the, the this and the that. Who's taking out the goddamn garbage? We didn't, you <laughs> name it, right? We didn't have this perfect um, place. It wasn't, it wasn't every choice we made was perfect and it made our lives easier. No, we screwed up a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> we made some bad choices and, and we live, a, we lived purposefully, primarily because we didn't know how to not do it. We lived a very ordinary life. We lived a very ordinary life. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's mixed in with flying around on planes and going, but, but we live, I tell you, you walk into our house, people are like, well, I mean, you guys, I literally, when I became CEO, people would say to me, they would see me in Wegmans or wherever, you know, the food store. Mm -hmm. And everything. you shop. <laughs> I would say, if we want to eat, we shop. <laughs> I don't understand the other thing. You know, you clean your own house. Yeah, I clean my own house. Yes, I shop. You know, after a while, you get somebody to help you clean the house once every two weeks or something like that. But I clean the house. We do our own lawn. We shop. And the reason why was not only because we wanted to teach our kids. That wasn't the primary example the thing that we were focused on. We were focused more on the fact that it was part of our normal life. If you know, that's the way, mm -hmm. the way we were raised. I want to say one other thing about what you said, that's really important about defining and about looking, looking behind, looking past and, and picking up those, those activities. The world was defined by white men everywhere in the world. It was defined by it's called supremacy. Mm -hmm. White men, Define the world, even in a lot of African nations, mm -hmm. Asian, you name it, 
Men defined the world, definitely the, the Western culture. White men did it. They did it to their benefit. Not, I'm not saying at the time that they set out what I want to do is you know, subjugate these people, but at the end of the day, that's what they did. Mm-hmm. They subjugated women and they absolutely subjugated and mistreated blacks mm-hmm. and anybody who didn't look like them. That model of the world is what we live in. That's what we live in. Mm-hmm. Right? So what we're trying to do now, and I say this all the time, we're trying, we're trying to say you have we have to redefine everything. Not everything has to be thrown out, but we have to look at every single thing and say, how in the world is it that if you want to go to MIT or Harvard or XYZ, that we have to take these tests that the white guy defined, he defined, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he and white defined what greatness looks like. And they did that to the exclusion at the, with the exclusion of anybody else participating, literally. Mm -hmm. So I say even family structures, the way that it's defined today, the man goes out, we we say that he's definitive. He's what is he? He can make decisions. He's a strong business leader, you know, aggressive, all of these things that are, that's a model that we, the reason why we think it's a good model is because the only model we've seen, Mm -hmm. only model we've seen. The reason why we think it's a good model that women stay home and literally depend on their husbands to deliver money, to deliver freedoms is because it's the only model we've seen. By the way, that model can work, mm-hmm. but there are other models that can work as well. Mm-hmm. And all I'm saying is that I don't think it's a bad thing that you decide to stay home, but I'm just saying you have to decide to do it. Mm-hmm. It has to be your decision, particularly if you pursue education in in some of the most needed fields in the world, in law, in education, in engineering, mm-hmm. for you to actually do that and then say, well, my husband doesn't want me to work. It sounds a little bit odd to me. Right. So, so I, I just think I'm not judging that. St- I'm not saying that staying home is bad. I just want to make sure that we do it. Right. The, 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 the little coda I would add, though, is that one of the reasons you stay home is if they're children that somebody's gotta that they're somebody has to raise them. Right. Somebody's gotta raise the children. I keep saying I'm not in the book I say this. I was not willing to outsource our parenting. Exactly. So we literally went crazy. And when it got to the point where we could not fit this in anymore, my husband left work. Mm. He was 20 years older than I and he retired because we got it got to the point the kids were moving around too much. It was, it was just crazy. Right. And so we just, they were in all kinds of stuff and we just didn't want to have someone there who did all that stuff for us. Mm -hmm. So we had to make a set of choices Mm -hmm. Uh, and we, we sat down and talked about it. At that point, it was kind of hard for me to say, I would, I would stop. I was going to, you know, I was in the middle of my career. My Mm -hmm. husband was at the end of his career. Mm-hmm. And he, and even in the be- in the beginning of his career, when we started to have kids, in the middle of his career, when we started to have kids, he was a scientist. So he had a lot of flexibility. He could leave the lab, you know, the, the, he, he didn't travel anywhere near as much as I traveled. So we were able to have in our house a parent almost all the time. By the way, you you realize as well how bad a parent you can be and how, you know, because mm-hmm. we're, we're dealing with stuff with our kids that both of our both myself and my husband did to them, right? We're trying to, <laughs> we're trying to fix it. We're trying to undo it. <laughs> but I prefer that we do it, not somebody else does it. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you start to try to have these conversations, it can't. It is the model needs to be changed, but it's also the recognition that somebody's got to do it. I mean, and actually, that is part of the reason why I I do this work in this podcast because the the it that has to be done is important <laughs> and and it can't be it's, it's probably the most important thing Carol. it really right. is i know that it is i say this a lot the one thing that will destroy you personally and your world order is a child that is in trouble Absolutely. that is you know a try a child that's on drugs a child that's in the system of some jail i have friends and i you know that doesn't mean you're a bad parent some of it just happens but I tell you, I have friends and you can see just how tormented their life is. Mm-hmm. So the most important thing you can do is make sure that these kids are set up to be good adults. 
Absolutely. Because if you don't do this, your life has changed forever for the bad, not for the good. You are only as happy as your unhappiest child. And so if you, right. I mean, so we should all look at it as parents. It's like a defense mechanism. Make sure they're okay so that you can actually be okay. 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 You can relax because I tell you, I have friends, executive friends, you know, it's just so hard. Yeah. It's so they've tried, they've done everything, you know, the kids have gotten in some bad situations and it's just their lives are wrapped around either fixing it, which in many ways is, is probably a good effort, but in a lot of ways, just saying it's not fixable Yeah, and basically having to dis- distance yourself. Yeah. You say to yourself, there's no way, there's no way that that can be a good outcome. No, no. So for all the young, I'm going to make sure that young people hear this because all the young people need to know that there's a lot of, a lot of analysis in there. I mean, it's on the one hand, the fairy tale of, of love, marriage and children is one that is time immemorial. But on the other hand, there's the model is, the model is changing and we just have to figure out how, how it gets changed. Ursula, I so appreciate this conversation. I, I could go on forever, but I'm going to wrap it up here. I, I want to thank you so much. Um, it's been a great conversation, and I, I always love to chat with you, and, and, and I know our listeners really appreciate hearing it as well. Now, one thing that I would like you to do before we go is to play my bonus round, where I'm going to ask you first your favorite poem, and then secondly, ask if there are any children's books that you remember either reading yourself or reading to your kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to add one. That's my f- our favorite movie. Okay. Show on TV because we don't really watch a lot of TV. But um, my favorite poem, interestingly enough, is a poem that I received very recently. I don't know the name of it. And I'll about I received it after my husband died. And it was a poem. I quoted the last line of it in Vernon's at Vernon's funeral. It was a poem that basically reminded me and reminds me of the reason why I'm feeling so bad is because I had the ability to love so much mm-hmm. and be loved by someone. It's a great Irish poem and I'll, a Jewish poem. Sorry, I'll send it, send it to you. It was a, just an amazing thing. It's a very sad and it makes me cry whenever I read it. But it's one of these things that when you think about it, you go, I got it. You know, you feel so terribly. You feel so like the world is lost because you were blessed with a relationship that had that much of an impact on you. Mm-hmm. Impact on you. But before that, I didn't have a favorite poem. My favorite saying is um, where you are is not who you are. And remember that when you're rich and famous. Mm-hmm. And, I say that all the time. And, and she, the context is that when you look around the world and we saw for the last four years before our new president, the the ramifications of not understanding this. We saw mm-hmm. a person who could look at another person and look at the, look at another person and by visuals and difference can define in his own mind whether this person was worthy. And you know, you 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 know uh, I make a lot of money. I'm powerful. I'm so I'm better than you is right. something that is that is so abhorrent to mm-hmm. me. It is so horrible because my mother, who I think was masterful, I mean, just masterful, had, would fit on nobody's scale. Donald Trump would have thrown her out, mm-hmm. sent her back to Panama. And she's produced three value and, and scores more value-added mm-hmm. uh, children fundamentally to the world. Anyway, that's it. Favorite movie, and we watched over and over again from the time my kids were tiny till the time they were older, The Godfather. Ah. <laughs> So my my two and three year old daughter and six and seven year old son knows most of the most of the, the guy's a very violent movie. I mean, <laughs> crazy. That is my husband's favorite movie, and yes, our children watched it from a very very early age. So yeah. it's a great movie. We, we love that. And the favorite show, our favorite show in the world is Jeopardy. And uh, we ah. still yeah we've watched Jeopardy from the time that the kids were we and to this day. At seven or seven thirty, depending on uh, you know what part of the United States you're in, we watch Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And then books. When my kids were growing up, I read them most of the books that I was reading. So the way that we did this, and then when they started to read themselves, we gave them two books. And I'll, I'll get into. But when I was growing up, my mother used to do this to me as well. She would read the newspaper 
so we didn't have children's books. You just read mm-hmm, whatever. So I just read regular books to them. And then when they got to the point where they could start kind of feeling around, my daughter liked Good Night Moon and The Hungry Caterpillar. Those were her favorite books. <laughs> my son, interestingly enough, was dyslexic, very, very reading dyslexic, brilliant mathematician, and now can do both fairly well because he was trained well. And so when he was a kid, he we would read to him almost exclusively because he was really not very good at reading. And we would, my husband would always read him the newspaper, always mm-hmm. read the news, newspaper. He's dyslexic as well. I never saw my husband read a book. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't read long enough a book. He, I don't think I've ever seen him read a book. My husband brilliant, you know, 85 patents, mm-hmm. math and science, but he was not a, a big reader. And my son at the end has turned out to be a reasonable reader um, as well, but not, you know, he had to do all kinds of things to get through school. That is such a good tip, though. One I've never heard that if you're if you've been reading as a parent and you have a little one, read your book to them. Read I your mean, book to them. My mother used to do that, so we just read them whatever we were reading. Thank you so much. I'm going to let you go. You got and it. I really appreciate your time. What a great conversation that was with Ursula. Boy, we covered the waterfront. We talked about how she grew up, all those valuable lessons her mother taught her and how she passed them on to her children. And then a really great conversation about this concept of work-life balance or just balance, as she said. Um, She had some really good advice for young men and women who are contemplating how their lives are going to play out with children. Really good stuff. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcast and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time... Take care and thanks for listening.